So this week, church, as you can see on the screen, we are continuing in our short Bible reading and prayer series to begin this new year. And last week, we focused on the importance of consistently engaging with God's word because this book is God's word. And so if we want to have a stronger relationship with God, we must take time and energy to continually hear from him in his word. That's how relationships work. That's how God has set it up. And so that was last week, which then, for this week, brings us to the topic of prayer, of prayer. And concerning prayer, there's obviously a lot we could talk about, but I I want us to spend some time here in Ephesians 2, because I do think that when we consider prayer and wanting to hopefully pray more in 2024, what we should be thinking about from God's word isn't primarily just, well, you and I should pray more, as if that's all that God's word has to say about prayer. Instead, what will actually encourage you and I to pray more is instead by focusing more on what prayer actually is. And so what is prayer? And well, I think Ephesians 2 will help us dive more into that this morning. And yet, before we do even get into this passage, to further set this up, and as for even more background on why we're even here in Ephesians 2. So this week, as I was considering what to teach on this topic, I was reading a chapter in a book on prayer. And as I did so, I was struck and a bit convicted as I read this short quote concerning what prayer is. The author said this, quote, Prayer is communing with God which is much more comprehensive than talking to God. Let me read that again. Prayer is communing with God, which is much more comprehensive than talking to God. And that was interesting to me because the truth is when I default to thinking about prayer or even teach on prayer, the language of just talking to God is usually the first thing that comes to my mind, right? We hear from God and his word and we talk to him in prayer. And to be clear, that is definitely true biblically and the author of the book I was reading would clearly agree with that. Prayer does include talking, speaking to God. But the author's point was that prayer is more than just talking to God. Instead, what is it? Well, again, it's, quote, communing with God, communing with God, meaning it's, it's actually being in God's loving, kind presence, which, of course, would include then talking to him. And that struck me again first because biblically when I thought about it, that actually made a lot of sense. But not only that, but just experientially and, and relationally, That makes sense as well, because think about it. If if you or I wanted to get closer to someone relationally, we'd of course want to hear from them more. We'd of course want to talk with them, but also we'd want to really be with them. We want to relationally commune with them, to use the more old school sounding word. And church, so it is with God. Prayer is truly communing with God. We get to commune with God. And in brief, that's what I hope we all feel after Ephesians 2 this morning, which hopefully will lead us to pray more in 2024. So that's just a big setup to all this, but that now does bring us to Ephesians 2 here in this passage itself. And so we're going to be in those verses 13 through 18 this morning. And to cover what's here and to go through it all while primarily speaking about prayer, We're going to have three sections this morning asking three questions. Three questions and three sections. And that's what they are. First, we'll ask, what did Jesus do to make us people who even are able to pray? What did did Jesus do? And that'll be the majority of these verses, actually. And what we're going to see is that what Jesus did is foundational to even the reality of prayer. 
And so I'll be first, which on second will bring us to ask, and because of what Jesus did, what does this passage say prayer most basically is? What, what is prayer? And just so you know, the, the word communion will not be used in this passage, but a similar and equally important idea will be introduced. And so first, what did Jesus do? Second, what is prayer? Which then third, and probably biggest of all on this passage, and mainly while we're here, why we're here in Ephesians 2, it's going to lead us to finally ask, and how does all of that impact the way I view prayer and how I pray. The way I view prayer and how I pray. And just so you know, this third section of ours, based on just one verse here in Ephesians, will be the most theological and the most practical section, I hope, this morning. The most theological and the most practical. And I know that might seem odds for some of us, for something to be really deeply theological and practical. But just so you know, all good theology should impact our lives deeply. And so hopefully that will be true in our third section. But in basic, that's where we're going, church. First, what did Jesus do so that we can pray? Second, what really is prayer? And third, how does that all impact the way I view prayer and how I pray? All with the goal of actually communing with God more in this year to come. But all that said, let's just begin our first section, church. And here again, we're going to be in all of verses 13 through 17, answering the question of what did Jesus do to make us people who are even able to pray? And on that question, if that question seems pretty obvious to you, we, we need to realize that for, for most of world history and for most religions really that have ever existed, one of the underlying questions has always been, who is truly close to God? Meaning, who are those who are able to know their true purpose and their creator? And not only that, but, but if the creator is good, which he is, then who's, who are those who are able to enjoy his benefits? And his peace, his, his shalom, as the Old Testament would put it. And in basic, that's what the Bible is going to be talking about here concerning what Jesus did for us. But that said, let's just dive in and see it for ourselves. We're going to be in verses 13 through 17. We're going to take this in just three steps, going pretty fast through it just to see their overall gist. And so we'll start in just 13, verse 13. So look down at your Bibles, Ephesians 2, 13. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So for now, you, we'll stop there and you can hear that language of being far off, but then being brought near. And again, that's significant because in reality, on our own, we need to realize we are now far from God. Even though he made each one of us individually, even though he genuinely loves us, on our own, we are naturally now far from him. And to be clear, that is not God's fault. Right? It's ours. We want nothing to do with him in our sin. And so we naturally now just kind of cut ourselves off from what's best for us, from God. And so we're far off because of our sin, but in Jesus, again, this verse says we've been brought near. And how? Quote, by the blood of Christ. And that's, that's the gospel, right? We're, we're far away on our own. And in Jesus, it's not just that we receive forgiveness, but the Christian good news of the universe is far bigger. It's that anyone, literally anyone, by the blood of Christ can be brought near. And if you trust in Jesus, you are. You have, in Christ, been brought near to God again. And that's something that's true of you. So that's verse 13. And in a way, that kind of already answers our question of what did Jesus do? to make us able to pray, but the Bible doesn't stop there, and so neither will we. Instead, the next verses then continue to expound on all that. And so now, look down at verses 14 and 15. So, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ, but what does that really mean? Verses 14 and 15. For 
He, that's Jesus himself, is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace. And so in those verses first, you can see the original emphasis on unity here, right? Unity. Because back then, just so we all know, this was being written mainly to explain to them that anyone from, from anywhere, especially from the Gentiles or the nations like us, anyone can be brought to God through Jesus. Right, so that's here in these verses. But then second, in addition to that, notice what's also a main theme in those verses, you might have picked it up, is that idea of peace. Right, peace. Verse 14, quote, For he, Jesus himself, is our peace. Which is an important quote, actually, from Micah 5, which is a, a famous text we know about a king coming from Bethlehem. So he is our peace. And at the end of verse 15, Jesus is said to have accomplished making peace. And now all that peace talk matters because this idea of peace isn't just talking about non-disunity between Jews and Gentiles, although that's true. But think about it, especially when it says, church, that Jesus himself is our peace. It means that Jesus himself, because he's really brought us back to God, he's our shalom. He's the way we're realigned with the peace of God, which is an all-encompassing idea, which of course includes peace with one another, but then also includes more and more peace within ourselves, all because we have peace with God. Okay, so that's verses 13 through 15, which finally on our third step here leads to verses 16 and 17. And so look there for our first section. 16 and 17. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So again, you can see the main emphasis here on unity between Jews and Gentiles. And you can see the emphasis on peace again. But then, there's also one more idea here, and that's how Jesus came to reconcile us both to God. Reconcile us. And now that's a similar idea to being far off and brought near, but this is now talking about how we're enemies of God on our own. And again, that is not because God is bad. It's because we want nothing to do with him, and because honestly, in our sin, we're, we're militant against God. We might say we want God, but we only want God, let's be honest, as we choose him naturally. Meaning we don't really want God, but we want to form our own God and our own little thoughts and images. But the good news is that Jesus comes to change that because in Jesus, again, he brings us near to the real God. That's the spatial way of putting it. And then the relational way of putting it is saying that he reconciles us to God. Meaning he takes that enmity and he abolishes it. He brings us back into a relationship with the living God. Which all means that concerning prayer, this applies because think of it. Once we had no hope of really ever communing with God or praying. Or as verse 12 actually, Ephesians 2 says here, which is the verse right before our first verse in verse 13. Once we were, quote, having no hope and without God in the world. But then Jesus came, because of him, we're brought back to God. We can experience God's shalom peace. We're reconciled to God. And so church, that's why we can pray. And therefore, for you and me, if we ever want to be people who really enjoy prayer, 
or actually just pray more, who are excited about this idea of communing with God, we must keep all of that about what Jesus did central in our minds. Because in the end, if you want to think of it this way, what that all shows us is that right there is that we don't pray, brothers and sisters, mainly because of us and what we do. And in fact, if, if we're ever the central focus or the reason in our praying, then we, we won't pray much. We'll make prayer just another thing that we feel like we should do in our lives. And then, honestly, it won't really happen, especially because we all know how busy and tired we are in our daily lives. And so, again, we have to think of it this way. We do not pray mainly because of us. Rather, biblically, we pray because of Jesus. Our praying is not based on us and our efforts. Our praying is based on Jesus and what he did for us. In prayer, we simply walk into what Jesus has already accomplished for us. And honestly, the more you and I think like that, the more we will be stirred on, freed up to pray. All right, so that's our, that's our first section, answering what Jesus did to make us people who were even able to pray. But now to kind of further build on that, for our second section, we're going to ask, and so Jesus did that, but what then does this passage say prayer actually is? And I know we've already been using the language of communion to talk about that, but there's another word in this passage that I think is helpful. And just so you know, this will be our briefest section of all, but I just want us to linger on this for a few minutes because seeing what prayer is here can, can show us the privilege we have of praying. And so that's what Jesus did, but now what is prayer? Well, for that, now let's continue on and read verse 18. Verse 18. So Jesus did what he did, verse 18. For through him, through Jesus... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so we're actually going to focus on most of that verse in our third section to come. But for now, in answer to what is prayer, you can see the main verb here. The main idea here is having access. Access. For through Jesus in one spirit, we both have access to the Father. Meaning the logic of this paragraph concerning what Jesus did for us, and I really think this is a great way of describing prayer, is Jesus made it not just that we can talk to God, but that we have access to God. Right? Access. And then, now what does that mean though? Well, well, for this word access, I, I looked it up this week, and this is actually a rare Greek word in the Bible, only occurring three times in this form in the whole New Testament. And it's based off of a word that means to enter into someone's presence especially used to talk about entering into a king's presence. And so it's based on that word, but then specifically it seems that this variation of the word means that you get to enter into their presence because you have a specific status, meaning you rightfully enter the king's presence. You, you rightfully are granted to be with them. And, and if you're tracking, that in itself then is a great way of describing what prayer is. We don't just enter God's presence, but we rightfully do. Boldly, because of Jesus. And quickly, to, to confirm that, one of the other three places in the whole New Testament that this exact word is used is another place here in Ephesians. In Ephesians. And so quickly, look there with me in Ephesians 3, 11 and 12. So this will be a page or so, or even less, to the right in your Bibles. And look here. Because this is even more of a helpful explanation of what our access to God is. Ephesians 3, 11 and 12. This was according to the eternal purpose that he, God the Father, had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. 
Now to, now to understand those verses, th- think of it this way, just to make this really applicable. So, so for some of us in this room, we may hear that we have access to God through Jesus, but still we might be a little hesitant. A little hesitant. Our hesitancy could come because of two similar reasons. Two reasons. First, we could hear that and still think, well, there's no way, though, that in my little praying, I could really be entering God's presence. Meaning we could sense our smallness or our sin, and we could think that we're not really welcomed in God's presence. Or in a similar way, second, we could think that, sure, all this sounds good about Jesus and access, but I doubt that God would really want to spend time with me. Meaning I'm sure I'm invited in, but God doesn't really want me there. But in in response to both those hesitancies, you can notice these verses again. Because remember, in verse 11 here, the Bible is clear. The gospel was and is God's eternal purpose. This is all his plan that he realized in Christ. And in verse 12, that's then why, all because of Jesus, we have such boldness and access with confidence. And, And what does that mean for us? Well, if you think about it, just those truths right there, they really address those two hesitancies. Because first, we can be bold and not hesitant, church, even as such small sinners to really commune with God because Jesus personally knows us. He's died for our sins. He's cleansed us. He showed us how much you are loved. But not only that, but listen up. And this, is, and this is so important on this idea of boldly praying, meaning really going confidently and joyfully, into God's, joyfully in God's presence. Second, and we have boldness, because we also realize from these verses that as we go into God's presence, God wants us there. God wants you there. Because as we saw in verse 11 here, all this about accessing God was and it still is God's purpose and plan. Meaning we are told that this God is the one who planned this and purposed this all along. Meaning he wants this. And therefore, let's just be clear, in what we are doing when we commune with God in prayer, yes, we are accessing God, that's true. But specifically, you and I need to realize that the God whose presence we're entering into, he isn't there feeling like he has to reluctantly receive us. Right, as if he just has to because of what Jesus did. And this, and this is so important because I think for all of us, we can, we can feel that way about communing with God or talking to God. We can think, sure, yes, accept me because of Jesus and I should pray more. But let's be honest, we rarely think of prayer as having access to this God who is so eagerly, excitedly, there, happy to commune with us. <laughs> but he is. This is his purpose. This is his plan in Christ. And so prayer is boldly, happily, confidently accepting that and going to this God, knowing that he loves you and that he welcomes you in more than you can even fathom. And so church, that's our first and second sections. But that all climactically, in a way, leads us to our third and last. We're finally going to ask, but how does all that actually impact the way I view prayer and especially how I pray? And for this, we're just going to be in verse 18 again. And as I said earlier, this section will be the, both the most theological and the most practical section. And in fact, for this section, we're just going to take those one at a time to see more deeply what's here in verse 18. First, the theological, and then second, what's practical here. But to begin, just one last time, look down at verse 18 with me. So we already know from this verse that we have access to God. That's basically what prayer is. 
But what else is here? Well, please look down your Bibles, verse 18, one last time. For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So, let's begin with the theology of this verse. And, and really, as you probably know, the word theology in Greek is just the word theos, meaning God, plus the word logos, meaning word or, or message. And so theology is simply words about God. And when we think of it that way, I want you to know this one verse, church, is perhaps one of the densest theological verses in the whole Bible. Not just on prayer, but on God. Because, because what do we see here? Well, in basic, what we see here is most technically what access to God, access to God means and looks like. Because, because, because what does it mean that because of Jesus we have access to God or that we're brought near to God? Or as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 3.18, which we covered in our Understanding the Gospel series, what does it mean that the gospel most deeply is Christ died for the ungodly, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God? Or we might ask, what does that being brought back to God actually mean and look like? And the answer is, well, this. What we just read in verse 18, it means that through Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Listen up. That's access to God. And now, I know that might seem a little confusing, but stick with me because this is so important because we might hear that and think, right, I get it because of the Trinity. <laughs> and yes, in a sense, that's true. That is definitely what we are talking about. But let's just all take a minute and consider together what that really means for us and for God and for our communion with God in prayer. Because, because what I want us all to consider right now is what's so amazing about what God has revealed about himself clearly in the Bible is that we know that there is one God, yes, but what's so important for us to get when we, under, when we think about him, when we think about that, is that there is not this one person that we call God, and then if we kind of get past him, then we can get to these three persons called the Father, Son, Spirit. Let me say that again because this can really change your life. It's not that there's this one person called God and sometimes though if we think hard enough we can go past him and find three more persons the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's not it. Rather get this with me. God is one being. God is one. But the one God is Father, Son, Spirit. You get that? Father, Son, Spirit is God. And personally, let me, just, let me just say, this is something that I've obviously known, but it's something that personally, in my experience, I've been working on and growing and loving a lot more this past year, and it's meant a ton for my relationship with God. And moreover, personally, this is also why, and just stick with me here, this is why I sometimes now don't like using the language of the Trinity. Not because it isn't true, of course it is according to the Bible, nor because the word technically isn't in the Bible. That doesn't matter that much if we're explaining a biblical concept. But the reason I don't love always using the language of Trinity is because church, let's be honest, what we sometimes do is we can think that God exists, of course, but then we can kind of think that there's this part of God or maybe this attribute of God, this thing that we call the Trinity. Meaning we can think that there's God and then there's this Trinity thing. Again, making it sound like there's this one person God and then though there's three persons we can get to once we go past God. 
But again, really, that's, that's not it. Rather, God is Father, Son, Spirit. That, that is God. And the point is, concerning Ephesians 3.18 here, that's really what we see. And I love this because that means that when we commune with God or have access to God, it is this that's going on. We engage with this God as there is no other God that exists. And what does that mean? Well, it means that as we commune with God and pray, first, it is all because the person of the Son of God who is God himself, Jesus Christ. He is there in our praying and his work and his love is the main reason that we're loved and accepted and we love Jesus for that. But, but that's not it because then also when we commune with God, there's also this other person, the Holy Spirit, who is God himself and he's the one who's even enabling us to pray or commune with God. That, that's why all prayer is praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit, just so you know biblically, isn't some special type of prayer. Rather, none of us would ever pray or could ever pray if it wasn't for the person of the Holy Spirit. And so he's doing that with us and we love him for that. But that's not all. So you've got, you got God the Son being there, the reason you're welcome. You've got God the Spirit inside you enabling us. And then with all that, we go, quote, to the Father as this verse says. I Meaning this picture is very clear. When you commune with God, that means that Jesus is there as your Savior and King and he loves you and you're so accepted because of him. And then the Spirit himself is in you, giving you your very breath, enabling you to think of God and dwell with God. And then in all that, you're going to and you're in the presence of the Father. The Father who, who loves you so much. Really, any love that we have, say for example for our kids, is just a tiny, mini picture of the Father's love for us. And, and here's the big point I, think, I hope we all get. Knowing all of that, engaging with that, with those persons, that's communing with God. Or to say it even more starkly, communing with God isn't ever this thing where it's just the one person of God and the one person of you. Rather, communing with God is you, one person, communing with God, Father, Son, Spirit, three persons. It is always a communal communing, if you will. And so stick with me, that's, that's the theology of this verse. And that now finally leads to the more practical part of this. So why is that practical, especially when talking about prayer? Well, maybe you can kind of sense where we're going with this because think of it. If that's communing with God, if literally the Son, the Spirit, the Father is doing all that with us as, as we're with Him, as we're praying, and then what that means for us as we pray is that we can acknowledge and spend time with and think about and talk to God with all that in mind. Meaning in our communing, in our praying, we shouldn't vaguely just think of God. Although, let's be clear, we, we can just address God. And, and when we do, that means we might be addressing all three persons of the Trinity. Or often in the Bible, where God is just talked about, it's usually referring to God the Father. And so, we can just address God. But church, what is so practical and life-changing is realizing that God, Father, Son, Spirit, that's who He is. And then again, showing that by how we think and dwell with and talk to Him. And now on that specifically, let me say, I do think that taking the example here and Jesus' example, that primarily you can see we pray to the Father. Meaning in our prayers, like we all know in the Lord's Prayer, we're primarily praying to the Father. 
But then it is also true that since we know as we're talking to the Father, the Son is right there, then we can also talk directly to him as happens a lot in the New Testament. And then also it's a a little more debatable if we should talk directly to the person of the Holy Spirit since he's actually never addressed in prayer in the whole Bible. But I do lean towards thinking we probably can. And even if we don't directly address him, we should at least frequently acknowledge his love and his presence. But either way, again, just to nail this home, the point is, if that's God and that's communing with God, then that practically changes the way we pray. It really does. But now you still may hear that and think, but still that does not sound that practical though. And so finally for this morning, as we start to come to a close, finally, let me just try to share with you two more clear reasons why I think this is practical. Two reasons. Because now think of this. So let's be honest. All of us in this room, so some of the main reasons we don't pray is because number one, because we don't know what to say. And then number two, because prayer can seem pretty distant or strange and especially boring. Those are usually the two reasons. I don't think it's mainly because we're busy. Because let's be honest, we know how much time we spend on things like our phones. So it's not mainly our busyness. Instead, it is mainly because we don't know what to say. And because prayer can seem distant and strange and maybe even boring. But what we're talking about concerning God, concerning prayer, can drastically help with both of those things. Because first, as for not knowing what to say, this is something we all struggle with. But I do think that's often because we have two of a stale and two of a strictly monotheistic view of God. Again, we can think of God only as one person. But he is not. He is one God, three persons. And that helps us with what to say because that means in our praying, we can and we should think specifically of the Father and his creative power and how he sent his Son and he's our Father. And we should talk to him about whatever is on our hearts to our Father. And the same goes for Jesus. Church, we get to talk to the same exact Jesus who literally came here 2,000 years ago and did all those miracles and died and rose. What would you say to him? And then the same goes for the Spirit. We get to commune with the Spirit of God who is God in us. And the point is, really, the more you and I think of prayer that way, the more we'll have to say. Please, just try that for yourself in your praying. Try not mainly just vaguely addressing God in general, but address each person of the Godhead. And you will see your prayers will become more vibrant and real feeling and personal. All because you'll be addressing the three persons of God. And so that's that's the first reason this is practical. It does help us with what to say. But then second, and we'll end with this, what about the fact that prayer can seem so distant and strange and maybe even boring? Well, for this, the truth is, church, the more and more that you and I deeply realize that literally the three persons of God are at work whenever we commune with him, that God, Father, Son, Spirit, is this mysteriously wonderful and loving and close to us and involved in our praying, then the more and more that we will see prayer as not this boring, dull duty, but as this amazing thing that you and I get to be swept up into. (laughs) And to further explain this, we'll now end on this with a famous quote by C.S. Lewis. This is from his book, Mere Christianity, which I want to point out is obviously one of the books that's downstairs in the book recommendation section. We'd love for you to go check it out after. And as you might know, this is a book where he's trying to explain the basics of Christianity, especially to an unbeliever. 
And on God in this book, and the fact that God is three persons and one God, just notice what he says. Notice what he says. And notice how in trying to explain that, Lewis goes right to prayer. Lewis says this. You may ask, if we cannot imagine a three-personal being, what is the good of talking about him? Well, there isn't any good talking about him. The thing that matters is being actually drawn into that three-personal life. And that may begin at any time. Tonight, if you like. What I mean is this. An ordinary, simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He's trying to get in touch with God. But if he's a Christian... He knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God. God, so to speak, inside him. That's the Spirit. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God, that, that Christ is standing beside him, helping him pray, praying for him. You see what is happening. God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal he is trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him which is pushing him on, the motive power. God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed toward that goal. So that the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. And that's so true, church. To sum up everything we talked about this morning, first, because of what Jesus did for us, we really are saved and loved and we get to commune with God. But what is prayer? What does that really mean? Well, second, it means that we have bold access to this God, where we get to be with God and God wants us there. But what does that even mean? Who is this God? Well, finally, third, it means that in our praying, we talk to God, yes, but even more so, in prayer, we are drawn, as Lewis said, into the threefold life of the three personal being. In your ordinary prayers, the Son, the Spirit, and the Father are there with you whenever you pray. And participating in that most deeply is what prayer is. And so what a privilege it is, brothers and sisters, to be swept up into the very life and love of God like that. That's what Jesus grants us. That's basically what eternity is going to be like. And when we pray, we get to taste that a little bit in our daily lives. Amen? Amen. Well, let's, let's do that together and let's, let's pray.